0: Good to be together this morning. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. Welcome if you're a first-time guest or recent guest. We pray that God would bless you as you're here with us, that you would enjoy some good friends, but even more importantly, the greatest friend available to us, God Himself through Jesus Christ. We are continuing in our series in Revelation this morning. We were away for a couple weeks, my wife and I and had a wonderful winter break, got to see our moms, got to uh, see some sunshine, some warm sunshine, uh, we were down in Florida, but we are glad to be back, and uh, it was a fruitful time of study and rest, and, uh, and just, you know, every time we come back, I'm sure we all feel this when you're away and you come back and you're here in worship, it's just like, yeah, this is so good, so good to be here with God's people. Um, so we're going to continue our series, we're in Revelation chapter 13, we're going through this book. Uh, Not because we have some sort of unusual interest or curiosity in in revelation, but because it it has a prominent place in Scripture and it's worthy of our attention. Uh, And it promises blessing for us. It's meant to be a book that blesses us, uh, not that merely entertains us or creates curiosity in us. So we're digging in and we're learning and walking through this, trying to learn as much as we can, walking humbly, uh, but also seeking the Lord uh, to give us insight. Uh, So we'll be in chapter 13. Uh, Before we dig into that, um, Eric Metaxas, let me tell you about Eric Metaxas and his uh, article he wrote last October on the 100th anniversary of uh, communism in Russia. He said, "Uh, 100 years ago, Bolshevik revolutionaries stormed the Winter Palace in Petrograd, the seat of the provisional government of Russia. When the people of Russia's capital city awoke, They were in what Rhodes scholar David Satter described as a different universe. The universe, that universe, was a communist one. Communism would eventually rule one third of the planet, condemning one and a half billion people to lives under brutal totalitarian governments and leaving behind a trail of over 100 million corpses. So many people died because, as Satter explains in the Wall Street Journal, the communist worldview sees the state as supreme, replacing God Himself. It's infallible, it transcends morality, and it demands absolute loyalty from its citizens. Karl Marx taught that that only such a state, acting for its people, can break the chains of economic oppression and private property, creating a new man. This type of person, depicted in Soviet propaganda, with bulging muscles and steely eyes, would work willingly for the common good, seek only to advance the interests of his comrades, and usher in a worker's paradise. The communist idea was nothing short of a godless eschatology, a heaven on earth. What we got instead was hell on earth. Mr. Metaxas' insight is profound. We can see really the same thing not only with the communists, but we can look into the history of the Nazis as well and see the same sort of ideology, the same sort of pursuit, the same sort of mindset. Just listen to a brief excerpt from Adolf Hitler's first speech uh, upon taking power. He says, When I fight for the future of Germany, I must fight for German soil and I must fight for the German peasant." He renews us. He has been the everlasting source for millenniums, and His existence must be secured. We want to lead our youth back to this glorious kingdom of our past, because I cannot remove from Me the love of this My people and firmly hold the conviction that just uh, but then the hour comes when the millions who curse us today will stand behind us and greet, us, uh, greet with us the newly created, laboriously won, and bitterly acquired new German kingdom of greatness, and honor, and power, and glory of justice. Amen. Perhaps you recognize the end of that that is almost verbatim lifted from the German version of the Lord's Prayer. Lest we think that perhaps in the West we are free from any sort of misunderstanding of what the state's role is, you merely need to look at many speeches of the presidents over the years, and you will see the same sort of references where the, where the kingdom of God and the truth of God gets mixed in with democracy. Now, don't hear me wrong. There is a God-ordained role for government. And the Scriptures themselves teach us they are there to bring justice and order. But too often, it turns into something more than that. It becomes an alternative to God Himself. Human government gets twisted in a counterfeit kingdom of God usually with a counterfeit religion fueling people's obedience to the government. False kingdoms are married to false religions. And that's what marks this time between Jesus' resurrection and His return. And really, that is the subject matter of Revelation 13. So we're going to dig into this chapter. We're going to learn about these truths about false kingdoms and false religions and faithfulness amidst these things. Most importantly, our faithful gods. The bottom line of this section is that we are called to be faithful witnesses amidst false kingdoms and false religions. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to teach us from His Word and to equip us to live as His faithful people. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, You've not left us to wonder how to live and to wonder what's going on. Whether Your people are living under communism or nazism or some sort of human government that would usurp ultimately your kingdom lord your word guides us thank you for revelation 13 and the truths here i pray you'd help me lord to rightly teach your word and rightly proclaim your truth and help us all to rightly hear your voice in this O god teach us and change us make us your faithful people by grace and for your glory we pray amen please follow with me in revelation chapter 13 starting verse 1, it says, "...and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority." One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, He was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it uh, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might Sorry, might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six. 6.6. Six, 6. That's Revelation chapter thirteen. I just want to give you a quick review to kind of bring us back up to speed on this. Remember, as we've been going through, we we've learned that there are seven uh, slightly overlapping cycles of visions in Revelation. Uh, each of these seven visions can be understood to have seven key components in them, and so they're they're saying the same sorts of thing, They slightly overlap, and we've gone through. Uh, a number of visions now. We're, this is the fourth vision cycle. So we, we saw the cycle with the seven churches and the throne room of God with that. The, the cycle of the seven seals and then the seven trumpets. And now we are in these seven kind of symbolic histories uh, in, in these chapters. If you remember, we touched on last time on chapter 12, we looked at the first two aspects of this vision cycle, the, the woman and the dragon, these signs in heaven. And we talked about that. We understood that they represent believing Israel and the devil. Uh, and this particular vision cycle, by the way, is a little different than the previous ones. This is looking at the activity of Satan, really, over the time of the church age, from the, the time of Christ until His return. So it's looking, looking at things from the aspect of the, of the devil's activity. So it gives us another vantage point here. It's important as we go through Revelation to understand that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That's a type of literature that is highly symbolic and prophetic, uh, speaking truth to God's people as they live amidst the onslaught of God's enemies. That's kind of what apocalyptic literature does. But there's an aspect to it that's it's symbolic and it can be abstract. And so it's challenging at times. Uh, it makes me think of, of what might be an experience that we would have if you had uh, the Museum of Fine Arts said, you know, we're going to have a display on a topic, say just a topic like friendship. And we're inviting all these artists, we're inviting a lot of abstract artists to come in and paint and put up things in, in a display area on friendship. And if you know abstract art, if you went in there, there'd, it, there'd be some things you'd just kind of look at them and go, like, I, I'm not quite sure what's there. But if you squinted your eyes maybe and tilted your head a little bit, and if you knew a little bit about abstract art perhaps, you could kind of see the theme of friendship somehow in that. Revelation can feel like that at times. Now, it's the work of the master artist, God Himself, and God at times uses this sort of literature to communicate. And what we need to do effectively is we need to study, we need to know the Word. So if we know a little bit about the background, just like knowing about the background of abstract art, that helps us a lot. Sometimes we kind of have to squint our eyes and look and okay, I get it. And that's our experience. So, so bear with me as we go through this uh, and learn. And I, I want you to be convinced that it's not just a matter of subjective interpretation, but, but uh, what, what the Word says. Now I have to tell you there's times when I'm not quite sure what it means. I'm squinting my eyes and turning sideways and I'm doing a lot of homework and I'm still I'm not quite sure. So we need to be comfortable with that. There are aspects here that... At least I, for my part, I can't tell you exactly what it means. But then there are other aspects that are fairly concrete. And so I'll emphasize those uh, as, as we hit them. So we're, let's dig into the chapter here and uh, remembering the key, the key line, the key point here. We're called to remain faithful even while false kingdoms and false religions violently oppose us. So let's first talk about the first piece and, and how it teaches us about false kingdoms. This first piece arises out of the sea. Uh, if you turn back to Daniel 7, you don't have to turn there. If you want, you can. But if you turn back to Daniel 7, you'll see actually the same thing happening. There are these beasts that come out of the sea in Daniel 7. Now the sea represented in the Hebrew mind, ancient Hebrew mind, chaos. Uh, and, and in perhaps even evil. So these beasts coming out of the sea represent evil beasts coming out of the sea. And in Daniel, actually, there are four different beasts that come out of the sea. And they are different animals and they look different ways and if you read daniel 7 and then read revelation 13 you would actually understand that this beast this one beast that comes out of the sea is a composite of all four beasts in daniel 7. and if you read through daniel 7 you, you would see that these four beasts in daniel 7 represent the babylonian the persian the greek and the roman kingdoms each beast representing a different kingdom and these, all these four kingdoms were kingdoms that opposed God's people. They were all kingdoms that demanded absolute allegiance. All kingdoms that op- opposed God's kingdom. And, and so that's how, that's how it functions in Daniel 7 and there's a whole storyline in Daniel 7 that parallels Revelation certainly. But this beast is a composite of all four. So what does that tell us? It, it's a beast that represents false kingdoms, trying to exert their reign over God's kingdom. So, right in line with Daniel 7. So that's what this beast is about. That's what we learned from going back to Daniel 7, that this beast functions as as a representation of a false kingdom exerting itself over God's kingdom. Now, backing up a little bit, if you remember, chapter 12, the dragon is thrown out of heaven by Michael and his archangels. The the dragon is thrown out of heaven, Michael and his archangels, that's representing a reality that through the work of Christ, through the victory of Christ and His blood shed on the cross for our sins and His resurrection and victory over sin and death, Satan now has no grounds to accuse God's people. He's the accuser of the brethren. He has no grounds to do that because in Jesus we are forgiven and counted righteous and being made ever more like Him. So His spiritual authority to, to... harm us is removed. He's thrown out of heaven. He's down on the earth now, it says in Revelation 12. And he's furious. And he's vengeful. And he wants to do all he can to oppose God and His people. But he can't touch us spiritually because we've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and our faithful testimony. And so what does he do? He recruits new allies. That's what chapter 13 is about. He's recruiting new allies, and one of those allies is false kingdoms. This first beast representing false kingdoms. This beast has seven heads and ten horns, ten crowns or diadems on those horns. It's interesting to contrast this beast with the dragon. The dragon as well has seven heads and ten horns. But this beast wears the crowns on its horns, and that's a picture that it is empowered by by the dragon to rule and reign as an ally of the dragon. He rules in direct opposition to God. He blasphemes God. He makes war on God's people and He conquers them. What does that mean? Well, we know it's not spiritually because we are conquerors in Christ. We are safe. we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. But physically, this beast does conquer God's people. He receives the worship of all people, those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. We'll touch on that a little bit later. That's... The good news aspect. But the bad news, guys, here there's a reality that Revelation is helping us confront. The reality is that this beast is going to wreak havoc on God's people. And it says, if anyone is to be captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. It's basically saying, guys, bad stuff's going to happen. There's going to be people put to death people are going to be oppressed. This is going to happen. God's in control. That's a message throughout Revelation. He's in control. But in His sovereignty and in His plan that ultimately works good for His people and glory to His name, He's allowing Satan to recruit this ally for his own purposes to oppress and conquer and even kill God's people. So in verse 10, it says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints." He doesn't say once you believe in Jesus, everything's going to be great. He doesn't say when the church is faithful, they will conquer and subdue all nations and they all will come under the Gospel and everything will be great. Now that might happen in some way at some point, but that's not what's being said here. He's saying what will happen as we belong to Jesus, The enemy will recruit, Satan will recruit this ally of, of oppressive government opposing God's kingdom who will execute the will of the dragon and will conquer God's people. Now, the question, the challenge of Revelation is when, right? When is this going to happen? And people differ on that. There are basically four schools of thought on the when of Revelation. There's a one camp says it was all past. They read in Revelation uh, that these seven churches are being addressed. Those were real churches, and there's the language throughout Revelation that this will soon happen. There's the connection in Revelation. There's a there's an uncanny correlation to the, some of the predictions and what happened at around uh, AD 70. There's Jesus' teaching on the the uh, Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, that correlates as well. So they'll say, you know, this is all past. It all was about what already happened. There's another group that says, no, it's all future. Because we see the connection in Revelation, we see the connection in Matthew 24 to when Jesus returns. And as we dig into Scripture, it's pretty clear that, that well, we know He hasn't returned yet and that that's future. And so these, these are connected to the future as well. Right? So it's all future. Then another camp says, well, it's all kind of present. And we can actually look at current events. We can look at historical events. We can look at you know, the, the medieval ages. And we can look at maybe America and all these things and, and connect it all and say that it, you know, it kind of applies to the present. Three camps. The fourth camp says, well, it communicates principles that apply to the whole church age. That's called the idealist view. Those are the four views, four different views. And, and in my study, as I've read scholars and studied and dug in with this, I need to tell you that I agree with all four views. <laughs> and, uh, and I would line up in this with actually with a lot of scholars, so just so you're uh, knowing that and not wondering, okay, Paul, are you trying to be original? No. Usually being original when it comes to the Word of God is a very dangerous thing. Um, No, there's a lot of scholars, so uh, uh, Dr. Beale, Grant Osborne would be two influential ones, but there's actually a lot of scholars from different places in convictions on Revelation, so I just want you guys to know about that, and by the way, this is a separate issue than what you think about the millennium. We'll get to the millennium in chapter 20, that's in a little while, Um, and there are different beliefs on the millennium, we'll touch on that when we get there. There's what's called premillennialism, which is Jesus is going to come back before, them, before. There's post that He's going to come back after. And then there's amillennialism, which says He's going to come back after, but it's not quite what the post people think. There's a different situation. Uh, then there's panmillennialists, who, says it, who say it's all going to pan out in the end, right? Um, and that, that applies to chapter 20. But you can hold any of those three or four different views on the millennium and, and hold different views on when it happens. So I just want you guys to know that because I know as we're getting in this, you're probably trying to figure out where is Paul on this? Um, And this particular view of the when is shared by people who hold all different convictions on the millennium. Um, I hope that helps. Uh, I hope it doesn't confuse you. Please ask me afterwards if you have any questions in this. But So the question is when. I believe that as we study Revelation, it it does happen uh, and apply in all these different time periods in different ways. So as we go through this, I think you've already seen that. You'll see it. Some more. So, this section of this first beast, I believe, has clear ties to the kingdom of Rome. This beast has seven heads. One has received a mortal wound, but it was healed. Now, that's speaking of a counterfeit resurrection, impersonating Jesus in his resurrection, but it also appears to be fulfilled by Emperor Nero. Nero committed suicide in AD 68. And with his suicide, it brought civil war to the Roman Empire, and the empire itself was in question. There was the thought that the whole empire is going to fall. And yet, uh, through a number of events, the uh, emperor Vespasian took power and there was great stability. By the way, Vespasian was the original person, uh, general who led the invasion of Jerusalem. And so he, he takes on power and the Roman Empire is reestablished. So it's healed. The, the wound is healed, it looks like. Um, and so we see a connection there. And, and it does seem to fit uh, to the Roman Empire. But when the Roman Empire ended, it wasn't the end of this beast's prowling and Satan's activity to use an ally of oppressive government. We can just look throughout history and see this. We can see the activity of, of Governments that have sought to dominate life and replace a role only Jesus deserves. And any government that seeks to do that will will eventually mimic the same behavior of the first beast, no matter what its particular philosophies might be. When the government promises to meet your needs and solve all your problems, beware. There's only one who can truly do that. His name is Jesus. And yes, he uses human government in its legitimate role, but human government apart from God and allying itself with Satan will seek to usurp God's role and Jesus' role to truly meet and solve all your problems. And we've seen that throughout history. The legacy of pretty much all powerful governments demonstrates this behavior. Since the time of Jesus to the year 2000, 69 million Christians have been put to death for their faith. Of those 69, 56 million of them were put to death by government opposing God. So that's the almost the entirety of all the martyrs have been martyred by false kingdoms. 2 million by the Roman Empire, 10 million by Islamic government, and 20 plus million by the communists. One of those martyrs was named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think we have his picture to show. He was one of the 69 million. He was a young and gifted pastor. He could have stayed in the United States and been a famous pastor and theologian. He was brilliant. His books today are still widely prized for their insight and biblical faithfulness. But instead of fame and prominence, he chose to return to Germany in 1939. That was at the beginning of the worst aspect of the Nazi reign. And he said about it, he said, I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. So he returned to Germany on the last steamer to cross the Atlantic and to go to Germany. He was imprisoned in 1943 and executed at the Flossenbürg Concentration Camp in April 1948-45, just two weeks before the camp was liberated. Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard aptly said, The tyrant dies and his rule is over. The martyr dies and his rule begins. The beast rages against God and His people. Brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised. He will use false kingdoms to oppose God's people. Let's not put our ultimate hope in human government. Indeed, as those who belong to the Kingdom, let us serve with all our hearts our our particular countries. For good, let us participate in God's plan to use God-ordained government for good. Let's gladly serve, but let us not put our hope in human government, that should only be reserved for God's kingdom. And let us not be surprised when others do it. Scripture teaches us that that's going to happen. And let us remain faithful witnesses, not putting our hope there, putting our hope in the ultimate kingdom and living for that kingdom. God gives us in this section, and we'll get into the good reasons shortly, all the reasons we need to not compromise with the culture as it puts its hope in human governments and to remain faithful witnesses. The second beast, false religion. This second beast comes out of the earth. He is worldly out of the earth. He has two horns like a lamb, but he's no lamb. He speaks like a dragon. He's full of deception and blasphemy against God. His focus, this second beast's focus, wants, he wants to bring attention to the first beast. He wants to get people to worship that first beast. Uh, and if they won't worship, he puts them to death. He performs great signs, making fire come down and making an image of the beast in, in this chapter speak. So those who hear him fall down and worship it. And if they don't, they are slain. He causes all peoples to be marked with the number of the name of the first beast. And only if they have that number can they buy and sell. Can they participate in the economic life around them. Those who are faithful believers, of course it's implied that they are not going to take the mark and therefore they're going to be cut off from buying and selling and suffer. This beast represents false religion that upholds false government or false kingdoms. Scholars have also seen in both beasts really a false Christ and a false Holy Spirit. This first beast seeks to usurp Christ and His kingdom with a false kingdom. This second beast seeks to usurp the the role of the Holy Spirit in drawing our attention to Jesus. Instead, He wants to draw people's attention to this first beast. He's a a false Holy Spirit. He's false religion. And they really go together. And And it looks like this correlates well with the situation in the Roman Empire. We visited that earlier when we went through these seven churches that they were struggling. They were struggling to remain faithful because there was so much pressure on them. To be a believer at that time uh, left you very vulnerable because what had happened was up until around that time, you could be a believer and be part of the Jewish synagogue and you were given an exception from worshiping the Roman gods as a result because you were safe under Judaism. You were counted as as a Jewish believer or a God-fearer. So you were safe under the Jewish synagogue. But what happened was the Jewish, the Jewish other Jewish believers, so they didn't, they didn't believe in Jesus, the Jewish people, were kicking out all the Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah out of the synagogue. So they no longer had that exception. Now they were on their own. And in uh, Roman culture, on your own, if you wanted a job, you had to get a job with the trade guild, the, the union. And those unions were intimately tied with false gods. It was a normal part of of the life of the union to worship the false gods. And and to buy things in the market as well. All those things had been sacrificed to false gods. So it was so tied up in the culture. And it was putting pressure on everybody to worship these false gods in some way. And so the situation with the seven churches we saw earlier, there was a lot of compromise that Jesus is calling them to repent of. Why was there compromise? Because they had to, in order to participate in buying and selling, they had to take the mark of the false beasts. They had to submit to the Roman culture, the Roman religion. So, religion, faith, worldview was operating to point people to submit to the government of Rome. That's the situation with the seven churches. So, it fits well with that as we look through that. Also, another connection here is this about the number 666. You know, there's nothing evil about the number 666, okay? The number's not evil. Uh, It's interesting in our culture, you know, that's become, oh, 666, don't say that. Uh, It's just a number. 666, it comes before 665, uh, uh, I mean, before 665, and after 667. Before, sorry. (laughs) That is... After 665 and before 667. Yeah. I actually went to school, just so you know, to learn these things. Um, <laughs> it's just a number. But in the text, as you read it, I, I think we understand what it's about. The number represents a name. And we're actually uh, encouraged to discern what it's about. To discern this, what this 666 is. And I think it's wisest to, to think what it would have been like for the original audience to hear this on a Sunday, to hear Revelation. If you were one of those seven churches, or the many sister churches existing at the time, and you are told to hear this and then discern the name that goes with this number. What would you have thought? Well, just a little background. In those days, they didn't use the number system we use. So our numbers are actually based on Arabic numbers one, two, three, four, five, and all that. They didn't have that. So letters represented numbers. They used letters. Um, and it's, if you've seen Roman numerals, you know it can be very confusing, but that's how they did that. So letters had numbers, so if your name is spelled with letters, you had a number that came out of that. And so it makes sense in that culture. That's what all it's saying. It's a representation of a name. And we're encouraged to discern who the name is. The name It's the name of the beast, right? The first beast, 666, is its name. And we're encouraged to discern that. Well, if you were there at that day hearing that and aware of what's all been said so far, And you did a little bit of homework, if you can put up the slide. You would, as a Jewish believer, uh, you would have called Nero Caesar by the Jewish word, which is Neron Kusser. So then on the right, N-R-O-N-Q-S-R in Latin. If you take those Latin letters with their numbers and add them up, guess what it equals? 666. Now, do I know that for sure? No. But does it make sense that that's how the original audience would have understood it? I think so. And then lining up with the other things it says about the beast, with it receiving a mortal wound and then it being healed and so forth, it begins to make sense that this represents, the first beast represents Roman, the Roman false kingdom, the Roman empire, with Nero as one of the heads of that empire. That's who it's looking at and we know the history of, of all that was going on at that time it fits in now that tells us that these things are past right well yes but they also I believe represent the whole church age and there's other scriptures we know tell us that this beast the, this beast and these beasts really point to what we would what is called elsewhere in scripture the antichrist and the final Antichrist has not yet come. How do I know that? Well, you can look in Second Thessalonians. So if you could put that verse up. 2 Thessalonians. Paul is trying to help the Thessalonians because somebody has said Jesus has already come back and you missed the train. And so people are upset. And he's trying to set it right. No, he hasn't come back. Here are the preconditions for him coming back. That's what he does in this section in chapter 2. So let me just read that, and then I think you'll see what I'm getting at. So. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So, Paul's saying, Jesus doesn't come back till this Antichrist comes. And it will be obvious to everybody who He is. There will be a final Antichrist. So is it past? Yes. Is it future? Yes. Is it a way to understand the whole church age? Yes. We merely need to look at history. We need to look throughout the whole church age and recognize that false kingdoms and false religion go hand in hand. And they oppose God's people. Whether it's Islamic clerics having their sway with Islamic governments. Whether it's Hindu priests and uh, believers coupling with Indian nationalists. Whether it's militant atheism and communist dictators. Whether it's a growing anti-Christian humanism with Western democracy. The first and second beasts always come together and they serve as effective allies of Satan. So what should we do? Well, part of this chapter is here just to forewarn us. To make us understand that this is the reality that we live in. And to not be surprised and to not compromise. This calls for endurance and faith of the saints. But where does that endurance and faith come from? Is Revelation saying just pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know? And be strong, and don't give in. Is that the message of Revelation? We're called to be faithful witnesses. Is that what it means? No. Over and over again, Revelation is pointing us to God and His sovereignty and His grace and His goodness. That ability to be faithful witnesses comes from Him. So my final point, faithfulness in our faithful God. Right in the middle of this chapter, verses 7-10 through is, is really our instructions. And it's both explicit and implicit here. We learn that those who are conquered are those whose name uh, has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And then verse 10. uh, It's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Good, you got it up there. So you see how closely those are in the paragraph, in the section. I don't think it's any accident. The call for endurance and faith of the saints comes after reminding us that our sure ground is the fact that our names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Who is the Lamb that was slain? It's Jesus Christ, the true Lamb, who lived a perfect life as the God-man, a life of perfect love for the Father, perfect love for people, laying down that good and righteous life for us on the cross. Dying and shedding His blood. Suffering the holy justice of God on the cross. Pouring out His blood so that your sins, your offenses against God, your offenses against others could be atoned for justly and fully. The Lamb was slain for you. So by simply turning from your sin and trusting in Him, you would receive forgiveness. And in that new life, you would be counted as sons and daughters reconciled to God, walking with God, enjoying eternal life that starts the day you believe and goes on forever with the Lord. No matter what may happen. No matter what the first or second beast might do, you are safe and secure in Him. And this passage teaches us that behind that choice to put your faith in Him, a real choice, a valid choice, a choice that we must all make is the Sovereign God acting before the foundation of the world to rescue His people, saying, I'm going to rescue this one. It's mysterious. We don't understand it in many ways, but it's the reality that undergirds our confidence to be faithful witnesses. That's how we do it, guys. That's how we remain faithful witnesses. We put our faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen for us Loved by God from eternity. He loves us. He's going to keep us. He'll never let us go. And we have every reason to hang on to Him as He hangs on to us. Because there's an eternal kingdom we're experiencing now in part. And when the Lord returns, we'll experience it in its fullness. And it will far outshine any suffering or sorrow we've ever had. That's the sure promise of Scripture. That's the promise of revelation. And so we hold on to Him as He holds on to us. So, Paul can say in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don McCormick tells the following story. I've shared this before and I can't find any story quite like this one. In the village of Siem Reap, Cambodia, Chaim, a Christian teacher, knew that the youthful, black-clad Khmer Rouge soldiers now heading across the field were coming this time for him. Chaim was determined that when it was his turn, he would die with dignity and without complaint. Chaim's entire family was rounded up that afternoon. The family spent a sleepless night comforting one another and praying for each other as they lay bound together in the dewy grass beneath a stand of friendly trees. Next morning, the teenage soldiers returned and led them from their Gethsemane to their place of execution, to the nearby killing fields. The family was ordered to dig a large grave for themselves. Then consenting to Haim's request for a moment to prepare themselves for death, father, mother, and children, hands-linked, knelt together around the gaping pit, With loud cries to God, Chaim began exhorting both Khmer Rouge and all those looking on from afar to repent and believe the Gospel. Then in panic, one of Chaim's youngest sons leapt to his feet, bolted into the surrounding bush and disappeared. Chaim jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority prevailed upon the Khmer Rouge not to pursue the lad, but allow him to call the boy back. The knots of onlookers peering around trees, the Khmer Rouge and the stunned family still kneeling at the graveside looked on in awe as Hyam began calling his son pleading with him to return and die together with his family what comparison my son he called out stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness a, a fugitive wretched and alone to joining your family here momentarily around this grave but soon around the throne of god free forever in paradise After a few minutes, the bushes parted and the lad, weeping, walked slowly back to his place with the kneeling family. Now we are ready to go, I am told the Khmer Rouge. Few of those watching doubted that as each of these Christians' bodies toppled silently into the grave which the victims had dug for themselves, their souls soared heavenward to a place prepared by their Lord. The band could come up as we close. My dear brothers and sisters, let us live likewise and if need be, die likewise in Jesus. By His grace and His love, we can withstand the devil and his allies because we have something much more precious and enduring than cheap impersonations of God's kingdom and truth. This chapter in Revelation puts everything in perspective for us. So let us not compromise with this world for the sake of avoiding friction temporarily. Let us not let the philosophies of this world define how we understand our present and our future or even our past. This is a passing world and these are counterfeit kingdoms and religions. There is an eternal kingdom and an eternal truth that has already started the day that Christ died and rose again and is growing throughout the earth and one day will be consummated finalized by Jesus return and it will fill every aspect of the heavens and the earth in perfect glory and we will have no regrets but choices we have made in His name. So, let us be good citizens of this earth indeed, but citizens of the eternal kingdom. Let us be good neighbors because we have as our friend the true King. Let us be engaged in blessing those in the world because we know the blessing of God's Gospel and grace. Let us live in light of these truths. and Let me close with... One of the stanzas from A Mighty Fortress once again. It says the following. That Word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. It's mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever.